This is Alex. And this is James. And you're listening to the American Toffee Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the American Toffee Podcast. James here, joined by Alex, per usual. What's up? Hope everyone's having a great week and had a tolerable hump day. Uh, We've got the rest of the week to look forward to before Sheffield United on Saturday. We'll be getting to that in a little bit, but first we have some news bits for you guys. And before we get to that, um, yesterday, September 17th, was the one-year anniversary of the first time that... I was fortunate enough to join Alex on this program, and he liked me so much that he let me stay on. And we've been doing this now for a year, and it's kind of flown by. Honestly, it's really been a really cool experience. And I posted something on our social media yesterday. So, but if you didn't see it, um, you know we've we've achieved success, relatively speaking. I think we're both pretty pleased with how much we've seen the show grow, and we appreciate everyone who's given us a listen even once. And if you listen regularly, we appreciate you that much more. But I just wanted to kind of take a moment to reflect and just thank Alex for one, for getting the ball rolling and starting this show and trudging through the trenches for a few months, uh, just talking into a mic by himself in a room, which I'm sure was really difficult. But we hope that you guys enjoy and appreciate the content that we bring you because we enjoy recording it. And yeah, and I just wanted to, you know, give a on air shout out and a, and a big appreciative um, statement to Alex. I really appreciate you as my co-host and my friend. Yeah, man. I mean, I really appreciate you. I I uh, personally was not tracking the one year. However, as you said, it has flown by. I mean, it has it, but it hasn't. Right? Like, I don't I don't know how else to explain it other than it has, but it hasn't. Uh, <laughs> Thinking back to like last December when we were recording like every two days and there was matches left and right. And I mean, that seems like you're right. It seems like it was ages ago and yet it seems like it was yesterday. And we're quickly coming upon that period yet again, um, which I'm looking forward to from a football perspective. But from a recording and scheduling perspective, it does get kind of hectic. For sure. But it's all right. I wouldn't want to do it with anyone else. And furthermore, we're willing to do it for all our amazing friends and listeners, because we're still um, confused as to why any of you would want to listen to us talk specifically. If you're if you're talking about listening to the podcast on the commute, like a lot of people do, that's uh, that still blows my mind. But I'm not going to complain about it. Keep listening. We're not trying to scare you away. Um, <laughs> and on that note, we'll jump right into the actual Everton business. Um, and actually, we're going to lead with something tangentially Everton related. Former Everton player, of course, Adrissa Ghana Gay played today in the Champions League for PSG against Real Madrid as they won convincingly 3-0. Real Madrid seemed to be a bit of a shambles at the moment, but Ghana had a fantastic game, played really well, and had a really nice little assist on a run. So, I mean, not too much to say on this other than really glad to see him achieving success. And it's nice when a player leaves on good terms and we can then root for him to perform well and achieve great things in his career, as I think we all we all feel that way for Ghana, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's weird to think about now that you say it because you think back to the last, I don't know, three, four, or five years, and and it's kind of hard to even pinpoint more than a handful of players that have left and the fan base generally all still like. But Ghana is definitely one of those people. Uh, you know, it, it really says something about a person when 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 the current fan base is is essentially saying, 
you know, we're okay with selling our best player because he deserves to go play in the Champions League or deserves to go play for PSG and make his money. So, I mean, as you said, I'm really excited for him. I think most people are, and and uh, I hope he continues to do as well as we know he can. Yeah, and just one last thing. I mean, I, I ultimately, really, it really has to do with like the context with which they leave and the behavior of the player themselves, because we know today in football. If a player wants a move, there's any number of ways that they can go about it. You can go the Romelu Lukaku route, where you're just constantly talking about how you want to play for a bigger club. Obviously, that's going to rub fans the wrong way. You have the Ross Barkley route, where you are quote-unquote injured for months, run down your contract, and leave to an in-league rival. And of course, those types of departures leave a bad taste in everybody's mouth. But Ghana went about it. Couldn't have been more professional. We knew, obviously, he wanted to leave last January, we said, no, you need to stay. And if they come back in for you, you'll leave. And and he left and his, I guess his attitude towards the club, I guess now that he's playing in a different league, um, he can sort of still show his support. Whereas someone like Barkley obviously isn't going to be posting on his Instagram story, uh, watching Everton on a Sunday afternoon. So yeah, all the best to Ghana. And it's really great to see, you know, we know what the, what type of player he is and what he's capable of. So a performance like that against Real Madrid is, is, not going to surprise many Evertonians, but it's great to see no matter what. Absolutely is. So next piece of news, according to Phil Kirkbride, JPG is not going to need surgery, which is always a positive. It's still up in the air as to when he's going to be able to return. Apparently his muscle injury came from when he took a shot in training leading up to the trip to Aston Villa. Hopefully, I mean, obviously surgery is, is fantastic news and that that puts him on a shorter timetable than than the other possibility, which would have been surgery. But, you know, with, with, with not knowing exactly when he'll return, that probably tells us that it's at least, you know, another month probably. Yeah, probably five. I'd say what's has been three weeks since he was injured, four weeks? Has it been a whole month? Yeah, I, I think that probably that's at least another month is fair. And the sooner he can come back, the better, because we saw, despite the limited sample size, very, very limited sample size, his combination size strength, and willingness to facilitate the ball is something that while we do have those attributes in other areas of our midfield, we obviously signed him to be a starter. And the sooner he can be back in the starting 11, I think we'll be a better team for it. And we do have <clears throat> capable replacements, but I just I just can't wait to see what he can do when he gets a solid run of games in the team. Yeah, I think the biggest thing at the moment will be, well, his physicality is always nice and we're legitimately lacking physicality in in the center of the pitch at the moment but furthermore i think his energy is going to be one of the one of the bigger positives in terms of just what he can add off the bat when he when he returns to the team and when he's fully fit hopefully during that i mean during this time obviously right you know as marco silva said in an interview in recent times talking about how they're going to support him through his recovery you know he's obviously still getting to know the players he's still going to be in all the team meetings He's still going to be watching tape and that sort of thing and studying opponents and, and studying um, the, the, the tactics that, that the coaches and the manager will all put together for every match. And so the biggest part to remember is that although he's sidelined, although he is, is not fit, he's still learning. And in my opinion, that's a positive because he was already thrust into the deep end initially when you could argue that he probably should have been, regardless of the injury, obviously, in training. And so now he's, he's still working on it. He's learning what are what are expected of of the team, and and I think that's going to be a really big positive. And I think that he's going to look much much better when he returns. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, the ability to kind of, though he's not playing day in, day out, you know, acclimatize or acclimate, I guess, himself to the tactics, to the language even. Like, I know he speaks pretty good English. It's been kind of put on record that his English is better than like Richarlison's, for example. But just getting settled in your new location, being at Finch Farm every day, doing his rehab or whatever he's working on right now, those types of things, making a player feel very comfortable off the pitch can only mean positive things once he's finally back on the pitch. So I think, I think you know, it will do him good and we really do need his depth and what he offers us in midfield, like you said, the physicality and and the tenacity there. So really, really all the best to his recovery and the sooner he's back, the better. Absolutely. So next up, Greg O'Keefe wrote an article for The Athletic. The Athletic, as a sidebars, is a fantastic subscription that, you know, that we got and, and two Two uh, notable writers for The Athletic would be Greg O'Keefe and then also Patty Boyland, which we did an episode with um, last month. But Greg O'Keefe actually flew out to Germany and sat down with John Joe Kenny, who's on loan with Schalke, and talking about his time in Germany and you know just adapting to life. Now, John Joe Kenny has started, I think, every league match for Schalke, and he's done well. He scored one goal, which was a really, really nice goal. But in the interview, you know, John Joe talks about the personal aspect of apparently this is the first time he's really living on his own. And so he said that way, you know, it, it kind of makes him feel like like an actual full on professional footballer because he's living on his own in his own apartment. He's got to he said things as simple as he's got to go shop and cook. Um, and so that was that was really neat to read. But also, you know, he talks about the fact that he's getting a lot of game time. He's enjoying it. You know, the manager, all the coaches, the players are really supportive and and enjoy having him there. And one of the most interesting pieces from the interview that I found was, you know, he talks about the, he talks about a lot of the English talent or Greg talks to him about a lot of the English talent across the world in the Premier League and, and specifically in the Bundesliga, as we know, is a hot topic recently. And you know, Greg talks to him about the pressures of playing in the Premier League as opposed to the Bundesliga. And, and John Joe agrees that there's nothing com- compared to like being in England, in Liverpool, and you see Sky Sports all day, every day. You know, you see yourself on the TV and that sort of thing, and you're playing in front of all the fans, and the Premier League's the biggest league in the world, blah, blah. And he said that when he was 19 and 20, which, mind you, is only three years ago or so, right? Two, three years ago, he didn't understand why managers, you know, specifically Everton, I guess, you know, he couldn't break into the team. He felt that he was doing so well. He knew he was ready to start, you know, trying to get minutes at the top level. But he said, now I understand it because the managers are under a different type of pressure in the Premier League. They have to win. And with that, you see, you know, less and less youth players getting a chance, as David Undersworth has stated um, in a separate interview that in general, you see players making their debut in the league at a much higher age than has been in the past. Um, So it was a really nice interview. If you have if you have or or can get a subscription to Athletic, I would definitely recommend it. But um, James, you know, for me, just reading it, Jojo Kenny has been kind of out of sight, out of mind, other than you know some clips I see on Twitter from Schalke hyping him up. But but that really made me warm back up to him in general, just because it's nice to have some positivity, you know. Yeah, and in, in the article, they do talk about what a hotbed the Bundesliga has been lately for young British talent to kind of forge their way apart from the Premier League because like you said and Greg said in the article it is very hard and the the pressure is so high that you can't afford to give a young player the leeway that they need to develop and 
if you make a big mistake in a match, it could it probably means you're getting dropped the next week. And so the stakes are so high, the cost of relegation or finishing, um, you know, finishing in the relegation places is a- astronomical. We're talking hundreds of millions of pounds. And so and managers getting sacked after two, three games into the season, look at Javi Gracia at Watford. And it's it's a completely different animal than I think a lot of the other leagues in Europe. The spotlight is tremendous. The media machine just in Britain alone not even including, you know, it's a global league. There's eyes from every country on earth watching these games week in, week out. And that's not a very good environment for young players to develop. And so it's nice that the Bundesliga has stepped in um, as kind of not a feeder league by any stretch because it's it's a very high level of football, but a different platform for players to be able to get better and get consistent game time, which we all know that John Joe Kenny needed. And it, it was clear that he wasn't really ready yet to take over Seamus Coleman's spot on a permanent basis. And I did, like you said, it was interesting. You think about it, he's only 22 years old, living on his own for the first time. He talked about, you know, when he was in Liverpool, he's home. He's going out with friends after training. He's going to, you know, grab food, doing whatever. And now he's just able to focus purely on the game, training, eating right, sleeping, doing all the things that a that a true professional is able to do. And getting in that right mindset away from all the distractions that come when you're in your hometown playing for your boyhood club. And it's a totally new experience, right? Having never lived away from home now in a completely different country, learning a new language. I mean, not just for the football development, but as personal development, that's hugely challenging. And you know, in a good way, it's challenging where you are constantly having to push yourself to be successful and achieve at the next level. And you really have to dig and find that motivation within yourself. And he talks about, I like coming home and just putting on, I can't, his recovery pants, I think was the quote, putting on my recovery pants, watching TV and going to bed. It makes me feel like a true professional. And I think that just shows that he has all the attributes, the right mindset to be successful. And then O'Keefe goes on to talk to David Wagner, who has a lot of praise for him and says that he's doing everything right. He's working hard. He's ingratiated himself into the team. And I have really high hopes for this season long loan. And my only concern now is that he's going to light the world on fire and um, Schalke aren't going to be willing to let him come back to us. They're going to want to buy him off us. And it remains, there's a lot of question marks still about Sidibe for us. If he's the long-term replacement for Seamus Coleman, I still think John Joe Kenny, you you can't discount how important it is to have a local player. What that does for the fans, what that does for, I mean, I guess it's mostly the fans and the extra motivation that that brings in a game like the Merseyside Derby. I'm, I still think that John Joe Kenny can be our long-term right back replacement. And I'm really looking forward to see how he continues to develop in the Bundesliga. That makes two of us. So let's wrap up these news bits before we move on to our preview of of Everton versus Sheffield United. So it was announced this week that Everton have now signed a partnership deal with Monster Energy. Yes, the Monster Energy drink. And they are now our official energy drink sponsor or, or you know, whatever, whatever marketing lingo, general marketing lingo is used. Now, it, it just note before we dive into this conversation, James, Spurs, Watford, Crystal Palace, and Southampton also partner with Monster Energy in some form or fashion. Obviously, none of them uh, have them on their kits, but but nonetheless, how do you feel about that partnership? 
Well, at face value, it's another commercial partnership for Everton, which will increase revenues and hopefully expand some of the avenues with which we're able to, I don't know, advertise to fans, access new fan bases. Just my personal take on it, I think the Monster brand, particularly in the US, and I'd actually be interested if you're in Britain and you're listening to this, kind of interested to hear like what is the, I guess, brand image of Monster Energy? Because in the US, I don't drink Monster Energy. I mean, I've had it before. It's fine. I don't really drink soda, but it has this like, because it's associated, it's long been associated with, I guess, quote unquote, extreme sports, um, UFC, uh, BMX, you know, X Games, that type of stuff. It has, it's almost like a meme in a way where you've got the Kyle memes where it's like just some guy named Kyle being kind of a douchebag. And I don't, I don't, it's, it's so hard to explain, but at face value, I guess it seems a little foreign for Everton fans because we don't have very many of these types of commercial partnerships, but for American sports and, and global brands like Manchester United, they've got hundreds, you know, they've got the official, the New England Patriots not to you know open up wounds for Alex, who's a Steelers fan. I'm a Patriots fan on the record. Um, but like you've got the official tire of the New England Patriots and you've got the official whatever thermometer of the Pittsburgh Steelers. You know, every team does this. They have these commercial partnerships. And because Everton are just now kind of expanding their commercial portfolio, they're a limited in the brands that they can get because of the size of the audience that they have and they command. And B um, it's, it's, we kind of just have to take what we can get. And so I don't think it's a negative partnership. I think, you know, advertising at Goodison Park, what have you, that's fine. I wouldn't even hate to see a white monster energy logo on the sleeve of the kit instead of angry birds. I actually think the logo itself is cool. I don't really like the green aspect of it, but I think it could look nice on the sleeve of a kit. And so all around just continuing to expand our, our, commercial base and bringing in more revenue for the club, which will in turn help fund the new stadium player acquisitions and whatnot. Um, There's really very little downside to this that I can see. I agree with you. I personally don't have any opinion one way or another on, on the sponsor themselves being monster. However, I will say just from a marketing perspective um, we've talked about it before, but it's been a good while. And this kind of comes back to our, our conversations about Everton not marketing to the United States while they had literally a decade with the Secretary of Defense. But but I think this these partnerships um, kind of show that Everton is finally starting to evolve into a 21st century club when it comes to business infrastructure and, and how they conduct themselves. Obviously, this summer we saw from a, from, from a larger perspective how they you know, essentially, we essentially decided we were not buying until we sold, right? And so our net spend was was pretty close to even, and, and we got a ton of wages off the books. My point is, I think that it's it's just a positive step. It shows that that we're working to continue to evolve, and, and ideally, it'll keep moving in the right direction, and it'll become a sustainable business model. Because unfortunately, whether anybody likes it or not, football, soccer. These clubs are businesses, period. If they weren't businesses, then you wouldn't see Burnley closing up shop or uh, Bolton almost closing up shop. So so nonetheless, James, I'm sure we could talk about that for quite a bit. You and I both love talking business, economics, all that good stuff. But let's dive into our preview of the match at Goodison Park, thank God, <laughs> against Sheffield United. So I have a fun fact for you, James. Are you ready for a fun fact? Lay it on me. 
So Sheffield United, our last meeting was March 3rd, 2007. I know that year probably sticks out to a bunch of you as it should for us as well. And in on March 3rd, 2007, there was a certain player that started in midfield for Sheffield United. And that was none other than Phil Jagielka. So in the last meeting of Sheffield United and Everton 12 years ago, Jagielka was playing on the other side of the pitch. And here he comes on Saturday back to Goodison Park as a Sheffield United player, whether he makes the squad or not. How crazy is that? Totally full circle. Time's a flat circle. That is, that was a crazy stat. And we you floated it out to me um, pre-ep. And I was like, that that really just shows how quickly things move. You know, I guess Jags never played against his former club for Everton. So it is uh, kind of interesting. I, I do doubt that he, he might make the bench, but he probably definitely won't start. Um, but all the best to Jags. I do hope that he is able to get some game time for Sheffield United. And it's nice to see him back at the club that kind of brought him brought him up through the ranks. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's interesting. And just to go on that story a tiny bit more before we get into a more statistical basis and tactical analysis and, and, and lineup previews, for, for some of you that may not know the history, in the season, this was the last season. The reason why it was the last meeting between the two clubs is because at the end of the season in May, Sheffield were relegated. Once they were relegated, so in other words, about three to four months later, is during the summer is when Jagielka was then picked up and brought to Everton by David Moyes. So it is legitimately full circle in a sense that that was his last season playing for Sheffield United, you know, in the game against Everton. And and even funnier in midfield, right? Because a lot of the younger fans may not even know that Phil Jagielka was a midfielder and he was converted more so to a center back when he came to Everton. So that that's why he was he was probably quicker but also smaller in stature than than a lot of the general center back um, physique that you see nowadays. Nonetheless, it's worth noting, I feel terrible for saying this so quickly, but Besic is also on loan at Sheffield. Um, James and I, we both kind of forgot about that for a second, which is really unfortunate because in the uh, 14-15 season, he was probably one of my favorite players just because he was you know, a really cool guy and he had Messi in his pocket and... He was aggressive, and we all like aggressive players um, in a blue shirt. So maybe a bit too aggressive for my taste. I think that was one of his bigger downfalls. But yeah, he, I don't even think he's made the squad for them yet. I don't know if he's injured or what, but I do hope that he does. He's also able to get some game time. Definitely a player that has no future whatsoever at Everton. So I do hope he can find greener pastures somewhere else. But enough on dwelling. You know, enough dwelling on the past. Here we can get into the preview of the match. Um, Sheffield sit at, I believe, 15th at the moment, and we're, of course, in 11th, so I guess relative competitors. And in addition to that, they have one win this season, and they've averaged one goal per match. So that's basically the same as us. So we're, take it how you like, but we're essentially peers with Sheffield United. They had a draw against Chelsea, which was a good match, and they actually, I believe, led at one point against Tottenham before conceding three goals. So they lost that one. But I don't know. I mean, it's at home, so you'd have to think we have a really good shot at winning this one. But they're not going to go down easy. I mean, people can easily underestimate the newly promoted sides, but look at what Norwich were able to do last weekend. Um, this is not a game that we can look past by any stretch of the imagination. I think they're going to come out with the right mindset. And um, 
they like to attack really heavily down the right flank. So it's going to put a lot of pressure on presumably um, Alex Awobi, but we can get into that discussion in a little bit. Alex Awobi and Luka Dean for certain. So I'll be interested. That seems like kind of not the best tactical setup to, to play against us, attacking heavily down the flank where our arguably best player is currently situated. But it's going to be, um, they like to attack wide and so do we. So And, and they play with a 3-5-2 formation. So um, going to crowd the midfield, which obviously makes things kind of difficult for us because we know how much we struggle against sides that, that pack the midfield in. Right. So I say it every time that we come against a team that sets up like this, uh, but three center backs for me is always an issue unless you were Burnley, was it last season maybe, in which we put five past them because they just seemed like they had no idea what they were doing or, or were imposters in a Burnley kit essentially. But my overarching point is that it's always difficult for us to play against three center backs. It's going to be interesting because you could argue that Dominic Calvert-Lewin was picked last week because the opposition's defenders were not were not the strongest, were not the best in the air, whereas he could take advantage of that as opposed to Moise Keane. This week, three central defenders. Um, the physicality, obviously, you know, it means something no matter what, but I, I wonder if that's as big of a point for Marco Silva in picking his team. Um, but in, in talking about wing play, as you said, our key, in my opinion, is going to be on the wing, specifically in the area in which in which you'll see their their outside midfielders transitioning back on defense into a back five. And I say that because we like, and we all know this, we like to play with overlapping fullbacks. And and when when you have, let's take this for ex- an example, Richarlison on the right, and then Alex Awobi on the left, they're always going to play inverted, right? And so it allows a lot of space and we overload that that area of the pitch. That's going to be really important because we can catch them out on transition. They're usually very organized. Obviously, they're going to sit in for sure because we are at home, they are away. However, that's going to help allow a lot of space or no, let me rephrase that. That's going to help open up some space for our striker. And then I think we're also going to see as, as Ryan Williams brought up in a, in a previous episode pretty recently. I think we're going to see Gofi Sigurdsson at attacking midfield joining in in those spaces, creating the trying the passing triangle as we often see, and, and that'll also help occupy one of their defenders. So it's going to be interesting to see how we cope with with the team bunkering down, but at home. So that that's an interesting dynamic. It's 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 definitely one that we need to win. I'll be very interested to see how how the wing play you know develops over the course of the match. So yeah, based on that, let's, uh, before we get into the rest of kind of the tactical analysis, let's just get the lineup predictions out of the way. And if there's no objection, I think we can safely write off the goalkeeper and back four situation because I think that's fairly obvious, but I do think that there's some legitimate questions that can be asked of who will play in midfield, um, specifically the two spots behind Gilfie, because again, I don't think that that's really up in the air. And then of course the striker and perhaps one of the wing positions. Cause I, I also think Richarlison's nailed on. Do you disagree with any of the nailed on positions? No, I think we're, I think you're spot on there and I think most fans would agree. So then off of that, do you think that we would see um, Delph retain his place? Do you think that perhaps Schneiderlin would also keep his place? For me, this game's crying out for Tom Davies to finally get a start. I don't know what the man has to do. I don't know what he did to deserve this purgatory that he currently exists in. But I think that he really can offer something that, 
yes, Morgan Schneiderlin gives us stability, stability, but I think Tom Davies offers that unique bit of dynamism that Morgan Schneiderlin doesn't have even on his best day. So I would really just like to, I just want to see the man on the pitch. I just want to see that hair flowing in the breeze. That's all I want. I, I absolutely agree. Right. I mean, I wear my Tom Davies kit every single weekend and, and he's any, he, I don't think he's really gotten any, any sort of minutes on the pitch this season, even in the cup match, which blows my mind. So I think that, that Marcus Silva is going to start Schneiderlin and Delph behind Gilfie Sigurdsson. I want it to be Delph and Davies. Um, Delph was man of the match uh, two matches ago, and then he stunk up the place last weekend. However, and, and this is completely from an objective point of view, Morgan Schneiderlin did absolutely fine in the match. Um, last weekend, he had three or four tackles, uh, two or three interceptions. Um, his passing completion rating was 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 pretty good, you know, pretty what you would expect from, from a central midfielder playing for Everton, starting for Everton in, in, in any given match. So if you're talking about form, I mean, sure, I don't think Morgan Schneiderlin did anything to lose his place, if anything, Delph did. But I, I think he's going to stick with those two, unfortunately. But I, I would rather see Delph and, and Tom Davies start behind Gilfie Sigurdsson. I, I don't think that we're, I don't think that we are outside of the realm of possibility of seeing some more shakeups because there have been plenty of decisions by Marco Silva this season, just in terms of, of lineup choices that have surprised a lot of us that, you know, feel, that we, you know, are pretty in tune with with tactics and and what each player fits in style and and how we thought the the players fit into the the manager's plans, vice how it seems to be playing out at the start of the season. So I think we'll see, but but I surely do hope that Tom at least features. Yeah, and furthermore, I mean, we haven't been good, right? We've been average at best and downright poor in a lot of moments and a lot of long stretches of games. And so I do think it's kind of warranted that we may look to shake things up. I mean, it's easy to say, it was easy to say coming off the win against Wolves that we looked great, but we still conceded two and very nearly didn't pick up any points. And then of course, the latest result. And so I just think the team's due for some kind of drastic shakeup. And I just don't think Morgan Schneiderlin's the answer. But as far as the attacking players go, is this Moise Keane's time to shine, Alex? Does he get his... uh, second full start or does Dominic Calvert-Lewin retain his place after scoring last weekend? It's an interesting question. I think it can go either way, but for consistency state sake, I've been saying literally every single week, maybe even twice a week, that if you want to be in the top six, if you want to compete in the Premier League, you play the players that are in form now. It doesn't matter who the name is. It doesn't matter what number they wear. It doesn't matter what you think of the player. If they're in form, then they should be playing I'm not sure that Calvert-Lewin is in form. However, he scored a very, you know, I would say a a pretty good goal last weekend. I thought that his play leading up to the goal was pretty good, you know, based on what he was given. And so with that, I think just at at very high level face value, Dominic Calvert-Lewin should, and I think he edges out the possibility of Moise Keane starting. What about yourself? I'm still on board the Moise Keane train. I think at home, it's a safe environment. He's not going to have to deal with any wild opposition fans. Not that I think that that's something that rattles him particularly. I think that's something, if it does, then that's a huge red flag. But nevertheless, I I still think he's a better, more complete player than Calvert-Lewin. And while it may be a bit harsh to drop him after scoring, I think we're going to need some of what Moise Keane can offer. And and 
again, it's a little bit unfair on Calvert-Lewin. He gets so much stick because he doesn't score goals, but he doesn't get a lot of clear-cut chances. He gets these quarter and half chances. And yes, he's not a striker that's going to be able to be clinical enough to convert those chances often or maybe even ever. But you know, to say that when he's receiving balls, running in deep into the opposition 18 over the top, trying to trap it over his shoulder, bring it down and score. It's a big task to ask. And he's still a very young player, Moise Keane being even younger. But I just think we need to give Keane some, a run of games under his belt, really see what this kid can do when he gets some momentum and rhythm going. So, I mean, I'm all aboard the train. Choo-choo. Let's get Moise Keane in there. Um, but any other, I mean, Richarlison on the on the right for for 100% locked in. Do you see Bernard getting a sniff of the team or is it Alex it will be all the way for you? So before we actually move on to the left-hand side, I want to ask you one question about this Dominic Calvert-Lewin, Moyes Keane debate that we're having, right? So my thought, and I, I, want, to, I want to know what you think about it. Dominic Calvert-Lewin, this was his first goal, I think, since I want to say March or April of last season, maybe February. It's been a long time. It's been about six months from what I remember seeing in the media on Twitter. Is probably a better way to saying that. That's not quite media. But what do you think? How do you think Calvert Lewin is going to feel or react, whether he, you know, it's subconsciously or not, if he looks at the team sheet or or Marcus Silva announces the starting lineup um, Friday night or Saturday morning, and Moyes Keane is starting over him? Although, you know, you could say that he finally got his coveted goal after X amount of months without one. Well, I'd hope that he'd react with positivity and a renewed sense of working hard. I mean, it's cliche to say, but you can't, if you're a player, a professional footballer, and you lose your head after being dropped, um, I think that kind of just speaks to sort of a mental weakness in a way. Not that I'm in any position to criticize a professional player who deals with you know, a lot, all the scrutiny, all the tweets that we send out and other fans send out, all the stick and whatnot. I just think that he has to buckle down and work hard and compete for his place like every other player. I mean, you don't think like Leighton Baines is sulking when he's not named in the team. You don't see, um, I, I don't know what Tom Davies' attitude is like in training, but I hope to see that he's working hard day in, day out, trying to fight for his chance and prove to the manager that he deserves it. So hypothetically speaking, if Moise Keane is named, it could damage his Calvert-Lewin's confidence, no question. I think he'll feel he deserves to start after scoring last weekend, but the manager's in a position to put Everton um, in a place to win games. And if he's going to do that, I still think Moise Keane is the best solution. Whether Marco Silva agrees or not, we'll find out Saturday morning. Um, but but as far as the the mental aspect of it goes, I just you you have to think as a professional that you're able to take it in stride and just strive to be better so um, that you can start the next week. I think that's really all there is to it. Yeah, I mean, my, I think my only my only counterpoint to that would be, yes, at face value, that's true. Professional footballer, right? Like you've been competing, assuming you've made it at the top level in the Premier League, or at least to this point as Calvert-Lewin has, right? Then you've been pretty much competing your whole life. However, my my only thought is, when you're that young, when you're when you're 19, like Moise Keane, or I think Dominic Calvert-Lewin's now about 22, this could be one of the first times he's actually really had adversity in in his life in sporting, right? And I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying, as a younger player, he may not have had to really, really battle like he is now for for a starting spot for playing time throughout the youth levels and. And furthermore, you got to think it's also 
amplified by the fact that now, because it's, you know, if he's had that experience in some form or fashion at the youth level, he's now on Sky Sports, um, even though they, they, I hear they don't like to cover Everton a whole lot, but he's on Sky Sports, you know, possibly every single day talking about his goal drought for six months straight, right? So so I think that plays a huge part in, in I think he's obviously lacking in confidence, but, but nonetheless, um, I agree with your point. I find the psychological effects and, and obviously Everton have uh, a lot of questionable psychological issues at the moment, whether that's dealing with a waveform or whatever else, but I guess that's another can of worms. So I think on the left-hand side, to answer your question about Bernard or Alex Iwobi, I legitimately think it's a toss-up. Bernard was the best of the front four in the first couple games. Iwobi started in the cup match. He scored. He then scored um, against Wolves after. He did not look very strong not strong like physically, but he didn't look very great last weekend. I wasn't very impressed. He kind of faded, as did plenty of the players. So so I think it's it's very up in the air on the left-hand side. And I legitimately think that that might come down to even just pure tactics as opposed to maybe form of a player, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree with you that it's a toss-up. Um, I, I do think Bernard offers different attributes than Awobi, but I think Awobi overall is a more complete and better suited player for the Premier League, namely because like you mentioned, um, the physicality part of it. I mean, though I think for the most part, Awobi struggled with his end product last weekend. He did do a lot as far as facilitating possession. I like the fluidity switching with the Charleston on the wings. So I still think Awobi's probably a better option unless Bernard comes out um, on Saturday and is has put on like 30 pounds of muscle and it's just like a little jacked ball of energy. Um, I, I still think Awobi's probably going to get the start. I think he's kind of nailed on, but it's, I, I think probably the area of, of the pitch where we have the most competition is on that wing spot. I think Bernard will be pushing Awobi all season long. And if Awobi slips up or has a bad game, a lapse in judgment, then his spot is there for the taking. So I do hope to see Bernard start several games for us this season but not on Saturday against Sheffield at home. Well, the positive thing is this season, we have someone to challenge Bernard on the left-hand side, right? So either way, it's a positive for Everton fans and and they're both pretty likable characters thus far. So I don't think we can lose there. So let's wrap up these tactical kind of notes that we've got. So we already talked about, you know, attacking and defending on the flanks um, on both sides of the ball, Right. Now, Oliver Norwood, he's a central midfielder on Sheffield. He's pretty much their standout player in in every category. He's their focal point. He's good at set pieces. He wins a lot of aerial duels, um, plenty of interceptions, tackles. He's got the most passes on the team by a large margin. Um, So it is literally, he is literally their focal point. You know, so my, my first thought would be if we would have had someone like JPG who had the energy and the the pace and the physicality to kind of just bugger him out of the match, then that would be ideal. However, we don't. So it'll be interesting to see how we deal with him in in the middle of the pitch. And then something that we weren't too keen on last weekend, James was, well, Sheffield United play with two strikers up top. And so that means that both Keen and Mina will be occupied all the time for the most part. How do you feel about that matchup? Well, I think last weekend was where we maybe started to see some of the cracks um, in our defense. We were cut wide open multiple on multiple occasions with Bournemouth's counterattack. 
So I do think that that's an area of concern with those two center backs. If they look to attack with pace, if they're able to string a couple passes together around midfield on the counter, we could be left very, very exposed if Dean gets caught out, if Coleman gets caught out making a forward run. So I do worry about that because we've conceded goals in positions that we really should not have conceded. And we're just looked kind of hapless on defense and our ability to recover. Um, I hope to kind of see a renewed sense of of mental resiliency where we're not switching off. I know I mentioned this on our post-match, but where when we concede a foul, we're then sprinting back, getting in position and getting ready to defend and not lollygagging around, walking and complaining to the referee because I think teams will key in on what they saw against Bournemouth and what they've seen against other teams where we do switch off in those moments. And if they're capable of taking free kicks or yeah, free kicks quickly and stringing two or three passes together, getting the ball upfield, we can have seven or eight players that are behind the ball and we're trailing and we're sprinting back and trying to recover. And that's when, that's when our biggest areas, um, of of exposure where we're most exposed kind of materialize so with the two strikers up top they're going to be looking to overload certain positions they'll be looking to overload on michael Keane, looking to overload on yuri mina and though they're neither of them are particularly pacey neither are center backs so it's going to be a physical battle i'll be interested to see what they do with the two strikers what how they how they match up how they move about whether they're looking to come wide, to come short, to go long. And it's going to be a, a lot of work for for Michael Keenan and Yuri Mina, but I do think that they'll be up to the task, especially at home. Right. And then and then kind of a stat to tack on to that striker versus Everton center back battle that we've been talking about. Away from home, almost 20% of Sheffield United's passes have been long balls. So that's going to tell you that they're going to absorb a massive amount of pressure, which Everton are not good at dealing with from from an opponent and they're just going to look to boot it out of the back get their two strikers involved you know pass it back to the midfield and see what they can do so that is that is as you said arguably the situation in which we're mo- we're most vulnerable especially if if you know it's the 70th minute in the game we've still got you know seven of the 10 outfield players in in the opposition half just knocking the ball around taking hapless shots trying to score a goal then that's going to, you know, I think start to break the mindset a little bit and you'll catch players slipping in those transitional periods. So it'll be, it'll be a little nervy, I think for a lot of us, but I'm hoping that we'll still have a pretty positive outcome. Yeah. And with that said, Alex, uh, lay it on me, man. Give me the score prediction for Saturday. What do you expect to see play out? We're so good at these, by the way, we're so good at predicting (laughs) score, but we do it anyway. So with the week I've been having, I, I literally need something at the end of the tunnel. So I'm going to, I'm going to create it in my mind. <laughs> the light at the end of the tunnel, apparently, uh, allegedly is going to be Everton Saturday morning, but I think I'm going to go with, uh, I think I'm going to go with two nil to Everton. We're at home. We like to keep clean sheets at home with, with Sheffield's average goals scored at one per match, which is same as ours. I don't feel that they're, they're going to be very lively in attack. It's just, we more so found ourselves talking about how prone we are to mistakes as opposed to how dangerous Sheffield are or could be. And so I think that a clean sheet could be on the books and, and I'm hoping that a couple of players can get on the score sheet. Ideally one of our young strikers. What about yourself? Well, Alex, I mean, I know you need a light at the end of the tunnel. I do as well, but I, in it's worth noting, of course, that this game is at home. So it's almost a completely different Everton team 
and we do play with a lot of resiliency when at Goodison. But I, I have talked myself into thinking we're going to win this one, but it's not going to be close, and I don't think it's going to be pretty. I think we get away with a two to one victory, and I think it's going to be really nervy at times. I think Sheffield will be able to create some chances, get some decent shots on the counter because we'll be very exposed. But I just think we have enough, and if the fans get behind the team and are and stay behind the team, it's going to be really tough for Sheffield to to maintain any kind of rhythm. So I do think we can come away with. That. At least we're both optimistic, James. Somehow, because I love to be hurt. I just love this when this team hurts me. So I'm I'm going to stay optimistic and just hurt me again, Everton. I'm ready. I'm ready for it. Just bring it on. Well, until the weekend, James, uh, stay alive and uh, up the toffees. Up the toffees. Thanks for tuning in to the American Toffee Podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at USA Toffee Pod to stay up to date on the latest episode releases and Everton news. And we'll see you guys next time.